Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. When the whole family comes together to watch the game, nobody wants to miss a second of the action to run to the grocery store. With Instacart, you can get all your weekly groceries in as fast as an hour. Less time shopping means more game time. Let's go. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum per order. Additional terms apply. Take it, shoot that, shoot that. I'm going in the middle. Welcome to City Game, your Brooklyn Nets podcast on WFAN and Radio.com. Here's your host, Steve Lichtenstein. And hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the City Game podcast, the show for Brooklyn Nets fans. I'm Steve Lichtenstein of WFAN.com, and folks, James who? What could have been deemed a disaster, you know, when James Harden limped to the locker room just 43 seconds into Saturday's Game 1 versus the Bucks, it turned into an afterthought as Brooklyn dominated the first two games of their best-of-seven series in the second round, including a 125-86 thrashing on Monday night. That one was wire-to-wire, with the Nets at one point holding a 49-point lead. 49 points? Look, you know, the series is by no means over, can't get too giddy, but boy, have the Nets look good. In this show, we'll get into how this was done, the usual clips of some of your favorite Nets players, and of course, head coach Steve Nash, and also have a very special treat for you, the immensely talented writer for FoxSports.com, your own Weitzman will be joining me for a Zoom call shortly. So I hope you find this show both informative and entertaining. And as always, I ask that you please subscribe to the City Game Podcast wherever you choose to download these episodes, be it Odyssey, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or some other platform I'm not aware of. And if you're an Apple guy, you know, please let me know what you think in the review section. So folks, the Nets word of the day is ferocity. That's the best way I can describe what just happened since the middle of the first quarter of Game 1. The Nets displayed a ferocity on both ends. A ferocity that we haven't seen much of all season. Not even in the five-game victory over the Celtics in the first round. And trust me, these Bucks are a different breed. And the Nets still made mincemeat out of them. Yes, we, we all know about Brooklyn's prolific offense. And as much fun as it is to see Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving put some of the NBA's best defenders on skates, you know, completely addressing them with their otherworldly skill, it's been the way they've gotten after it that's been most eye-opening to me. And after Game 2, I asked Nash about whether the Nets just turn on a switch, knowing that they'd be facing a stiff challenge in Milwaukee, and here's his response. Hey Steve, that ferocity that you just mentioned Is that just a matter of turning on the switch, knowing the opponent? Or do you think it's uh, a little bit about continuity 
playing together? I think a bit of both. I mean, I think we we recognize, you know, that they're a very good team and we have to bring everything we have. Um, and then I think continuity and confidence is growing. So I think we're more uh, aware of what we're trying to accomplish in, in, in more scenarios and, and that's helping us, you know, uh, feel free to, to really go for it, play hard, compete, uh, be willing and okay to make mistakes, but, but try to do the right things at both ends. Yeah, I think they just turn on the switch, especially after Harden went down. I mean, I said last week that the big question of this series was whether Brooklyn could get enough stops to give their incredible offense enough of a cushion. They didn't have to be great, just good enough. You know, despite dispatching the Celtics in a mere five games, they really weren't all that good defensively. Nearly 116 points allowed per 100 possessions. Awful rebounding numbers, which I'll get to in a few minutes. And that was against a really banged-up team. Facing Milwaukee? Yeah, they had to be better. I asked Joe Harris before the series what had to change, and here's the clip. Hey, Joe. uh, Granted, uh, winning the series was of the most importance, but what was your honest evaluation of where the defense was and where it needs to be? What do you have to do better to advance this round? Um, I think we uh, showed flashes of really good defensive spurts. It's just a matter of putting it together for a full game. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there was definitely uh, improvement. Uh, you know, there was definitely some games where uh, we kind of slid a little bit. I thought early on in the series was probably some of our better defensive efforts. But um, a lot of good stuff, you know, just in general and stuff that hopefully we can build on. Rather blasé answer there from Joe, but gotta say, mission accomplished, right? Like I said, you know, the Nets turn on the switch and turn into a real feisty bunch. I mean, you watch Blake Griffin, who many said was washed up when the Nets signed him in the bio market? This guy's been a menace on the court. Throwing his body around, taking charges, diving on the floor, and yes, even turning back the clock with some of the most ferocious dunks you'll ever see. Now, don't get me wrong, he was doing some of that in the regular season too, just not with the consistency we're seeing now. And let's not forget his knocking down five of his 11 three-point attempts this series. Guy's simply been making game-changing plays all over the court, often getting the Barkley Center crowd all riled up. That fight for a loose ball with Bobby Portis in the second quarter of Game 1 ended up in a jump ball. Even though the Bucks won that ensuing tip, I thought that might have been the turning point of the game. The Bucks knew then that these Nets weren't going to get pushed around so easily. I asked Griffin's current and former teammate in Detroit, Bruce Brown, about what we're seeing from playoff Blake. And here's the clip. Sorry, Bruce. Uh, can you talk about the ferocity with which Blake played tonight on both ends? Yeah, he always plays with that good energy, uh, fire to him. Um, as we know, they, they counted him out earlier this year. At the beginning of the year, so he got something to prove. Uh, he's playing really well, and uh, he, he's going to continue that. That was a quickie from Bruce Brown there. So, you know, when Harden went down, the big question on everyone's mind is who would pick up the slack? You know, first off, who would start? And to Nash's credit, he went with Brown, the ultimate glue guy. Been doing that all year. But, you know, often gets pushed to the sideline because he doesn't shoot threes well enough. 
You know, the Nets went 29-8 and eight in the 37 games he started. So there must have been some kind of quality fit there when he plays with the team stars. And really, you know, it's his unique ability to plug into multiple roles on the court. You know, he's primarily a wing defender, but he can switch on to bigs. It's not ideal. Brown, though, you know, he was one of several Nets who've done a masterful job hounding the Bucks star wing Chris Middleton into tough shots in the first two games. Brown, by himself, according to NBA.com, has held Middleton at 2-for-10 shooting from the floor when he's been the nearest defender. And on the other end, after a so-so outing in Game 1, Brown was also fantastic, you know, as the short roller on pick-and-rolls, getting the timing down for his patented floaters over the Bucks' length in the paint. Still, that in of itself doesn't explain how the Nets have managed to maintain their excellence on the offensive end in the absence of their floor general in Harden. They're still averaging 120 points per 100 possessions in this series, a rate which would lead the league if it could be maintained for a full regular season. Again, the Bucks are supposed to be this really stout defensive team, ranked ninth in the league in defensive rating over the course of the regular season. Giannis Antetokounmpo and Drew Holiday are always up for the NBA's Defensive Player of the Year awards, or at least I think they should be. Now, this should be happening if you take away probably the best offensive shot creator in the league. I know the Nets have Kyrie and KD, but I think it's that next-man-up mentality. The other guys, as Chris Carino and Tim Capstra always talk about on their radio uh, broadcasts, you know, mentioning the Will Farrell movie. I asked Nets backup guard Landry Shamit before Game 2 about how he personally could help pick up the slack for Harden, and here's the clip. Hey, Landry, uh, drilling down on Brian's question, uh, with you know this team has always had the next man up mentality. What are you in particular hoping to do better uh, to help fill the void for for James's absence in Game Two? Um, I don't think there's any. I mean, you don't have to do big spectacular things. I think everybody's got to do their jobs and be that much more locked in on the little things and the small things. Um, you know, it's not just scoring or or playmaking on the offensive end when, when James goes out, it's, you know, there's just more minutes there and more opportunity to, to do all of the little things the right way. And um, that's all I'm focusing on, focusing on what I can control. Um, can't control the amount of shots I get or the amount of shots that go in or um, whatever on the offensive end. So it's my, my mind, my mindset is more on the, the defensive end and being locked in and, um, and, and being valuable on that end. Again, that was Nets guard Landry Shamit, who had three big three-pointers in his five attempts on Monday night. He was one of nine different Nets who nailed one from deep, as Brooklyn set a team record for most triples in a playoff game with 21. The ball movement that has fed the long-distance game has been absolutely exquisite. Ball's been popping from side to side with good shots passed up for great shots. I mean, what's a buck to do when he has to rush to close out on KD or Kyrie and then initiates an around the horn that ends up with a Joe Harris wide open three? But getting back to replacing the Harden minutes, how many of you had Mike James playing 30 minutes in a second round playoff game like he did in game one? The answer should be none of you. Well, James went out and played a near perfect game with 12 points, 3 assists, 7 rebounds, and most impressively, zero turnovers. 
I asked James after that night about his error-free game, and here's the clip. I'm sorry. Uh, you, you talked about uh, playing free, and you also played relatively state-free. Lived only two turnovers in the second half by the whole team against what could be a very disruptive Milwaukee defense. So I want to know what the conversations were like about you know, trying to make simple plays or, uh, you know, trying to keep it relatively mistake-free? Um, I don't think it was. I think uh, when you play tentative, you, you tend to make mistakes and we start thinking too much. I think we just played basketball. I think people were aggressive. We were aggressive hitting holes. We were aggressive driving to the lane, and which created uh, help defense from Milwaukee, which created kickouts and extra swings and people to get open shots. So I think... Uh, just us being aggressive all night with everything that we did and being uh, real decisive with every move, it just helped us out as as a whole. My apologies for the audio quality there. I'm going to put it on the nets. They've been having uh, Zoom issues all week, but it's neither here nor there. That was Mike James, who was plucked from a European League team towards the end of the regular season, and now he's a valuable contributor for the nets. If I can give James just one tip, though, a little more passing, a lot less shooting. And when you're sharing the court with Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, you shouldn't have seven field goal attempts in 18 minutes like he did through three quarters in game two. You don't get a heat check after making one three-pointer. But other than that, I must say that he gave Brooklyn everything he had, despite his height. He wasn't exposed too much on defense, and he battled alongside the gang rebounding department, which you all know is a big concern going into the series. I talked all through the Boston series about how the Nets were rebounding less than two-thirds of the Celtics' misses, the worst rate among all the playoff teams. And then Milwaukee opens up Game 1 with nine offensive rebounds for nine second-chance points in the first quarter. Brooke Lopez had four of those offensive rebounds. He's a net. It'd take him all week to get that many. He got four and a quarter. But give the Nets credit. They held Milwaukee in check the rest of the way. Just six offensive boards for 11 second chance points surrendered over the final three quarters of game one. And both 11 offensive rebounds and 11 second chance points in game two. Nets can definitely live with that. And fortunately for them, Mike Budenholzer is coaching on the other side. And I have no idea what he's doing over there. Not to help them out or anything, but anytime Lopez isn't around the paint to grab or tap out Milwaukee's misses, they're doing Brooklyn a big favor. I know Brook has evolved into this multi-dimensional weapon with his three-point shooting, but it's not like he's converting 40% of them. Shot under 34% from deep in the regular season and is now 3 for 12 so far in the playoffs. If I were Bud, I'd have him closer to the basket. Maybe as a pick-and-roll screener for Giannis cares about spacing when you can play bully ball trust me if the nets end up playing the sixers it won't be a problem for them when both joel Embiid and ben simmons are supposedly clogging the paint Giannis can shoot over anyone anyway and speaking of the greek freak his free throw shooting is really a problem for them on so many levels and he wasn't really that bad in the regular season around 70 percent but now he first has this issue where he can't get the ball out of his hands within 10 seconds of receiving it from the referee. That's supposed to be a violation, you know. It's rarely called. 
maybe once or twice, I think. Anyway, I asked Nash about it before the series started, and here's what he had to say. Hi, Steve. Uh, yesterday, uh, Ryan asked you about your well-known competitive fire. In that regard, um, did this year come down to something as little as free throws, and Giannis has been known to flirt with the 10-second rule. Are you someone who cares that the referees adhere to that strictly? Uh, you want to hear the Barclays Center crowd count down the clock, or do you just not care about that stuff? Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not top of mind. You know, I mean, uh, it's interesting. It's a rule. Um, so, I, I, you know, I don't know. Are we, are we enforcing it or not? But it's not, like, high on my priority list, uh, you know, focused on the things that we do and how can we improve at what we're doing and how can our team continue to develop and grow. You know, that's by far my, my concern and priority. Um, you know, that, that, that doesn't really, I don't think, crack my, my top ten. I mean, interested to know what they do with that, uh, if they continue to call it or not. But, um, you know, I, I actually hadn't thought about it in our three days of prep here since the last series. So, you know, the funny thing about that is I kind of questioned myself after that one, wondering whether it was appropriate to ask. But it turned out Stefan Bondi of the Daily News asked the exact same question last night. So I no longer feel like I did something out of school. In any event, you know, I never thought I'd be saying this, but what fun it's been anytime Giannis has been getting fouled. Nash may have poo-pooed it with me, but on Saturday night, every time Giannis went to the line, the Barclays Center scoreboard put up a shot clock. The crowd ran with it. You could tell the freak was freaked out. Missed all three of his foul shots that night. Now, no way do I believe that the operator would put something like that on the scoreboard unless Nets management was at least aware of it, if not blessing it. But, you know, maybe it wasn't, or the team had a change of heart because the shot clock disappeared during Giannis's Game 2 free throws. That didn't stop Nets fans, though. Nope. Giannis ran his streak to five straight misses before converting two of his final five free throws. And by the way, all ten of his free throw attempts came after 10 seconds elapsed, without a single violation called. But if the Nets instead put a mental block on Giannis, all the better. Like I said, Nets fans couldn't have asked for a more fun in these first two games. Two glorious nights. Now, you know, the chalk prediction for most analysts was that this was always going to be a seven-game series, you know, two evenly matched teams. And the theory goes that it isn't a series until the road team wins one. And the Nets have two in Milwaukee coming up. So this still might be a a really tough series. But a lot has to change in Milwaukee for this series to even get back to Brooklyn next week. Now let's hear what your own Weitzman of FoxSports.com has to say about all this. Here's my conversation with your own. Folks. I'm honored to have this very special guest on with me for this week's spot. The incredibly talented young writer for FoxSports.com, Yaron Weitzman, is here on Zoom. Yaron, thanks for giving me some time today to help me out. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Yaron, you were sitting next to me at Barclays Center last night. Yeah. What did we just witness? I mean, <laughs> there were like a dozen <laughs> plays that had me doing my worst Dick Enberg impression. You know, oh, my. Yeah. And I was just in the first quarter. I mean, what did you make of the Nets' performance last night? It was, you know, the same thing was looking up and um, saying, like, what, what is going on here? Yeah, it's two parts, right? What to make of the Nets' performance and, I guess, the box, right? I, I actually texted a few people during the game, you know, like NBA people. 
asking, is it so the Nets are unbeatable or the Bucks stink, right? Um, and I think in this one, most obviously the answer is going to be, you know, those are two extremes, but then not that the Bucks stink, but the answer is both. But just uh, it does start with the Nets. They just leave you, you know, they, they and some of this, and like Giannis spoke about this after, and Kyrie also kind of alluded, this, alluded to this a little bit in his own Kyrie ways, but they just leave you defenders and opponents feeling helpless sometimes, I think, because it's just you can't guard them. When they're on, and not even when they're on, you can't guard them. You can hope they miss shots, but you can't guard them. They stretch the defense so thin. Like, there's one play in my mind I'm thinking about where KD and Kyrie kind of pass the ball back and forth, each go one-on-one, none of them get it. So then Kyrie just pitches the ball to Joe Harris, who just happens to be the best three-point shooter in the NBA. He's alone in the corner, right? And right. just they spread the defense. They make the court feel like it's a mile wide. And when that happens, then the team's going to start pressing on the other end. And we kind of saw that last night. Well, your game story from last night on FoxSports.com focused on the brilliance of Kevin Durant. For those who haven't yet had a chance to read it, so what were your main takeaways uh, from that article? Um, that Kevin Durant, I, th- I mean, he's you know he's coming for the crown. You know, it's like that nerdy, dumb barbershop type conversation. Though I guess none of us really go to went to barbershops for a year. We got We have to change the phrase, right? We called it a. Um, we call it barbershop conversations, but it's more like a Twitter and text message conversations now, right? Well. Dumb ones. Um, so, but just, you know, the best player in the NBA and he's going through Giannis. LeBron is out. There's Kawhi in the other conference and it'll be really fascinating to see those two kind of match up and what really could be, you know, a battle for the crown. But just before Durant went down with the injury, which was two years to this day, um, as we learned during the post-game press uh, on-court interview with Jared Greenberg, um, you know, Durant, there was, there was a belief that, wait, wait maybe Durant, is come, maybe he's the guy. Maybe he's the guy. And then he goes down, and now we are two years later. And just, he is just, he hasn't missed a step. He hasn't missed a step. And, you know, Kyrie's even saying he's better. I don't know about that, but Kyrie was saying that in terms of how he processes the game. And it's just all so slow for him. The Nets have put him in the situation where he's around the super team that's built to accentuate his strengths and where he, to leverage him and just, you're watching him now and you're like, is any, could anyone stop him? And this is all without James Harden on the court. That's the crazy part too. Yeah. You see, I, I have had this conversation back and forth about who the Nets most valuable player is. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure that they could do that with Durant out. Do you agree? Or? I would. Yeah. I mean, because again, there's, and that's why I wrote, there's never been a player like him in NBA history. That's not hyperbole, right? These other guys are great. So James Harden is fantastic, right? He might be the greatest one-on-one player. Oh, I apologize about that. James Harden, he might be the greatest one-on-one player. And, you know, up there in NBA history, right, you go through the guys like Michael Jordan, Kareem, James Harden, but just Durant, a seven-footer who is can shoot like Clay Thompson and dribble like Kyrie, basically, right? It's just we've never, we've never had that before, and it just leaves you feeling helpless. And so Harden can have great games, and he, he, we've seen him dominate, and, you know, he's maybe – he's, like, you know, these triple-double type things and the assists and all that, but just – I, I agree. I agree. I would say that Durant is the one who leaves opponents feeling just helpless and hapless and like we can't do anything about it. There's nothing we can do here. Yeah, I mean, because the consensus opinion was that the Harden injury would set Brooklyn back immensely, but then they go insert Bruce Brown into the starting five, and one can argue that having that extra defender slash glue guy there, you know, really helped the Nets set a tone early, whereas, the you know, I don't know if you follow, they used to often struggle at the starts of games. So what do you think of Brown's fit with that starting group? Well, that's the other thing. So this, this, the, everyone deserves credit here. You know, the manage, management, um, Steve Nash, which I maybe we'll talk, I wrote a story about kind of some of the stuff he's done. in terms Coming of up. That's coming place. up. Okay. There you go. I got to keep promoting myself, but um, yeah, no guys like they just, they built, they found these role players who are all thriving in their roles. Um, no pun intended. And who have figured out ways to, 
you know, there's this perfect thing. So Bruce Brown yesterday, you're listening to him talk, and he's, and I forget, was it him or KD? But he's talking about, yeah, they're not guarding me. So when they're not guarding me, I know exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to set a pick on, I'm going to go set a screen. And when the guy, my guy is not guarding me, he's hanging back in the paint. I set a screen on the guy guarding Durant. Durant can just walk into an open jump shot because the guy would be helping on the screen. He's under the rim, right? And if you watch it, he's just such a good and opportunistic cutter. And it just shows there are guys out there that if you put them in a position you find the right guys and you put them in these positions where they know their role and they know exactly how to play in that. They can really, really thrive. You've seen that with Bruce Brown. We've seen that with McClaxton. We saw that with Jeff Green earlier this year. Um, and yes, like I, you know, I did think they would, I, I, I thought the series was going seven before um, Harden got hurt. Right. So I'm not going to pretend like I saw this coming. I'm very surprised. Um, and then that's deserved a ton of credit. Cause it's rare to see a team build a super team and gut a roster the way they did to go get James Harden and yet still have depth be a strength. Right. And that's impressive. Chris Carino and Tim Capstra on the radio. They talk about the other guys like the Will Ferrell uh, yes. movie, you know, the one, the one guy who used to be a star, but is now one of those other guys is Blake Griffin. Yeah. And he's, you know, seemingly gone back in time. Uh, I mean, this guy has been a whirling dervish on the court. I mean, how surprising was it for you to see Blake playing this way against this opponent? So I'm going to, I am, I am wrong often on the Blake thing. I'm going to take a victory lap. Okay. I was, um, I was surprised people did not think he would be thrive in this situation, right? That surprised me. I know he looked pretty cooked in Detroit, but to me, if, if, if you had watched him the past few years in Detroit and you had seen the player he evolved to, and he be, sort of became, was it, I, I lose track now of the COVID. I think it was two seasons ago, whatever that was, two or three seasons ago when he was an all-NBA guy. Like, that's one of the more underrated recent seasons we've seen in, one of the more underrated seasons we've seen in recent memory where he was basically playing point forward for this garbage team, taking six threes a game, hitting 36%, doing everything and carrying them to the playoffs. And Blake Griffin, yeah, we all know him for the, dunks and jumping over the Kias, but he is a, and always was a world-class passer. And he is a really, really smart player. And I don't know if people recognize that. So to me, when he, the Nets got him, I just figured he'd have to be, he might be not the player he was, but he'd have to be so washed to not be able to use his level to leverage his smarts and his passing ability and his overall skills, which again, I don't just mean dunking, his shooting and passing and ball handling and all that stuff. And he'd be getting, and I figured he'd be getting the ball in so much space because of all the attention that would be put on the stars. I just kind of assumed, you know, I, I was surprised that a lot of people thought he would be cooked and had no, had nothing to offer. And to me, this is kind of what I expected that this guy who was that, that type of athlete and talent and that smarter player, you give that guy the a room to operate in space and in two-on-one situations and things like that. And I kind of figured this is what we would see. But did you expect all the hustle plays, you know, the taking the charges? <laughs> I mean, the guy gets more floor burns per game than anyone. And, and he, he, I think he really riled up the team. I think his effort plays – they, they kind of uh, spearheaded what was to come, you know, and fed, uh, you know, their transition game. Yeah, that's a good point. And listen, the dunks, like, they're, they're emphatic and they definitely, um, you know, energize the uh, the crowd. Well, I'll use crowd in quotes. I talk about the Brooklyn Nets. Can I make fun? Can I take a Brooklyn Nets shot fan, fan shot there? Is that okay? Oh, but, <laughs> um, but um, you know, I agree with you. It's been, and I do think, it's listen i've enjoyed watching him i'm I'm just such a fan of his game i guess in my surprise that he's doing the hustle plays not really because i think when you sign up for that he kind of knew what he was doing and the thing about these guys like kd and Kyrie and james harden like these are guys that everyone else in the league 
understands what they can do and is open to deferring to them. Does that make sense? Like it's different. We've seen super teams before with stars before we've never seen a collection of three guys who are all this type, these type of offensive talents. It's like, I don't think in NBA history, maybe you want to go back to like days when like Elgin Baylor was like the fifth option in the Lakers. Right. Well, I guess Curry Thompson, Curry Thompson and Durant. Durant, Right. But I correct. So Thompson would be the third guy there, but he, I mean, he's a dead eye shooter. He could not create one-on-one the same way Kyrie can, right. He is not the offensive player that Kyrie was. I'm not saying better or worse. You know, there's an argument, you know, in terms of you rather him off the ball and all that stuff, but just, Kyrie is a third option. We have never seen that in NBA history. That kind of player is a third option. It's just it's just unprecedented. Yeah. I'm talking with uh, Yaron Weitzman, who's now at Spot- FoxSports.com. Yaron, uh, I believe the second article you submitted since you joined the Fox team was a really well-written one on Monday on Nets coach Steve Nash and his constant use of the term connectivity. Yeah. And you try to drill down on what that actually means. I know it's not a simple answer, but what was your conclusion about it? Yeah, so to me, I just noticed that, like, you know, when he got hired especially, he was doing – he did a lot of press at the beginning, right? Um, and then he flew out early press conferences. I just kept hearing him use this word connectivity. And it's one of these things – I try to do the thing where, you know – I did this actually the other day on a Zoom. Like, Nick Claxton was talking about physicality. And I just always like asking people, like, what does that actually mean? And sometimes you get some good answers, right? You realize mm-hmm. there's actually – you know, sometimes it's just cliches, but sometimes there's actually some – or like when um, Sean Marks uses the word strategic in every sentence. I don't, I don't know yeah. if you ever get a good answer to tell him that could mean anything. Right. So as soon as you get, so Steve Nash, I, I'm for, I didn't get to uh this is a, I guess I could have asked on a, on a uh, group zoom, but you don't want to give away story ideas. This is how media covers NBA in 2021 in a pandemic right. or post pandemic world, right? You can't ask all the people you want to ask um, the questions, but basically talking to people who have been around Nash for years and, people who have known him and people who are known the Nets, it basically means it's a, it's a few things, right? It's one, he's used that word. It's interesting. I Googled it or looked it up on newspapers.com. He used that word during his playing days in Phoenix a lot too, right? So it's something that he believes. It's just, he's big on that. The idea of it's creating camaraderie and teamwork and, you know, connecting everyone. And that can mean a million things. So one, back when he was in Phoenix and Lloyd Pierce pointed this part out to me, not the Phoenix part, but back when he was in Phoenix, they did a study and that Suns actually had an intern to keep track of how many times he was high-fiving um, team high fiving, <laughs> yeah. butt slap, slapping, um, yes. I, I, yeah, all that stuff. Um, and they, that's some job, yeah, right? To count how many times you butt slap somebody. <laughs> exactly. Right? You exactly. Tell we all, we about all, that. We all got to start somewhere. Um, and I think the number was like two thirty nine. And around that same time, there was a study that came out from some Caltech. I was at Berkeley um, professors um, or researchers that basically, and I'm going to oversimplify this, but basically found the correlation between touches, those kind of touches, right, and wins in the NBA. And it's one of these things that Nash clearly, I mean, I don't know if he was aware of the study, but he clearly believed there was a benefit to that. And if you want, and Lloyd Pierce, who knows Nash for years, they played together at Santa Clara, um, I called him for the story, and he told me that one of the things he's noticed that Nash is, you know, everyone says Nash is coaching the way he played, right? He's acting the same way he did as a player. And one of the things Lloyd Pierce pointed out to me, is that after timeouts, you often see Nash hopping onto the floor doing those high fives, right? And if I point it out, you'll, you can picture it is what I'm saying. He's like a very distinct, it's a very, um, I'll say aggressive yeah. or very eager way, right? The way he high fives and bounds yeah. out after One thing timeouts. though, I'm just sorry to stop you. I just, yeah, one me. thing that it's, that's been different is that, you know, I think he was more fiery as a player. I think he's, yes. I, haven't, I have yet to see, you know, raging Steve Nash on the sideline. Is, is that correct? 
Yes, I would agree too. And I think, but I think that's what he's just so the connectivity parts of it is that there's understanding that, and he said this on JJ Reddick's podcast, he wasn't hired. He said, I wasn't hired for my X's and O's. And that's not saying he doesn't know X's and O's, right? Steve Nash knows X's and O's. Um, it's different level in your coaching. But he said, you know, I was hired. The job is about connectivity. The job was to kind of manage this, these, these big stars. And this was before James Harden was there. And there's stars, and then there's mercurial personalities, and then there's Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, right, for the next level. So to manage those guys and to figure out how to keep, keep a, you know, be accommodating to them, but also demanding of them and how to keep a lid on the drama and how to empower all the other players and to have everyone feeling like they're on the same page. And he's kind of figured all that out. And I'm sure there's been some stuff behind the scenes that we haven't heard about. Right. But for the most part that no, that there's been no drama coming out of Brooklyn, you know, Kyrie disappears. I'm saying that stuff's drama, but like we don't hear issues of, the team doesn't believe in Nash or Nash and Kyrie are clashing or anything like that, right? That is impressive. And it tells us something about him. And you compare all that. And I know nobody wants to hear that Steve Nash, you know, had a hard job, but I don't know if you could have a more difficult first season for rookie head coach in terms of the personalities he has, the team he has, the talent and expectations combined with the, all the COVID stuff, right? A condensed schedule, no practice time, all this craziness going on. And, and the injury. Every and the injuries, time. correct, right? And yeah, and the injuries and starting lineups, and he was throwing a mega trade in the middle there, right? It just like it just it's it's not it is this is a tough this was a tough job and he's done phenomenally. We've seen that and basically you see that based on how it doesn't matter who they insert into the lineup, they thrive. There's been no drama. The players seem to buy in. I had some examples, you know, talk to Rockets, um, former Rocket staffers, and like the, the they're using a ton of Mike D'Antoni Tony's playbook, which shows that, and it's one of the things we talked to people talked about when Nash was hired, right? And it's like the Steve Kerr comparison is that he's confident but secure, right? And that's a huge difference. Whereas sometimes guys, Jason Kidd, for example, was clearly insecure. You think back to the <laughs> Lawrence Frank, right? To the Lawrence Frank stuff, and that was major. Those are major issues. Um, and Nash, on the other hand, is leaning on his high-priced assistants. And you know, the, the James Harden comes over, and I don't know if it's A to B, but the Nets start switching a ton of defense. And I think it's pretty fair to assume that that was partly done in deference to James Harden, who loves switching and prefers to switch. So things like that. He's just done an unbelievable job, and I think he deserves a lot of credit. And I think if you go to it, like that connectivity, that word that he talks about, the, all that stuff I'm talking about, like that's what it means. And understanding that that's important and why. And the Nets understanding that he could bring that to this team and the, to this roster. And that that's why it was worth taking a shot on him and kind of buying, taking a gamble and having it pay off. So I just, I find it all very interesting. Yeah. Well, it was announced yesterday that Nash got a few votes in the coach of the year balloting, you know, which one was won by the Knicks, Tom Thibodeau. Uh, yep. I know a lot of Nets fans were not thrilled with Nash's game management over the course of the season. Yep. But I think he certainly acquitted himself well to date in these playoffs. But back when he was hired, did you see his inexperience as a potential hurdle or, you know, for, for this time of the year, or were you on board that this could translate this well? I was, I not unique. I was on, but I thought this was going to be closer to the Steve Kerr type comparison as opposed to, we'll say Jason Kidd, right. Or Derek Fisher, where the players just jump right in. Um, just, Knowing people, it does seem like you talk to enough people and there's something about Steve Nash. It's this, um, I'll use annoying, like the unicorn personality, right? These just these special kind of leaders and people who get it. Um, and you can tell by the way he talks. And you never know, right? Because getting in that, like you can, maybe the players wouldn't buy into all his, uh, you know, kumbaya talk, right? <laughs> Things like that. Um, but I just had a feeling that this was the right guy. And, you know, I mean, Kyrie said it in that podcast, right? We don't need someone to coach us. We need to manage us, whatever the exact quote was on the KD podcast, right? And that, by the way, quotes like that 
or why you want somebody like Steve Nash as your head coach, right? He just he feels like he's very clear he's secure and doesn't feel like he has to prove anything. And he knows to like say that I didn't hear it. Exactly. And not to make a big deal about it, right? Or not to leak to somebody else that he's upset or whatever it would be, right? And I'm sure, like, listen, when he sees that, I, you don't think Steve Nash is rolling. Of course, he rolls his eyes at that, right? Steve Nash gets it. Like, he understands. I think he's, on, he's in on this whole thing. But he's just trying to win. And he knew what he was doing when he was taking a job. And yeah, to me, I, I would be... <laughs> I would be fascinated to know, even though they're winning, this again, difficult year, like he looks back in the year and Kyrie disappears every two weeks and all the other stuff going on. Like, do you see, look back and say, man, this was worth it. I'm glad I came out of retirement for this. I would prefer <laughs> to be, you know, broadcasting soccer on Bleacher Report and, like, <laughs> you know, showing up at Warriors practice every month. Um, but he's a competitor. He really is. I, I just, yeah, I'm not so surprised. And they, and they lined him up with these Jock Vaughn who um, as like a defensive guy, Mike D'Antoni, who he obviously has a relationship with, and that was really smart. And he's clearly um, open and interested in leaning on them in terms of X and O, you know, adjustments up in the playoffs. So yeah, there's been times earlier in the year when some timeout management and rotations and things like that weren't great. But um, I don't know. I mean, we, I don't even know who we're going to see. that's going to push them like that. Right. If they get through Milwaukee, which it looks like. They're well, I'm going to get, I'm going to get to that now because you know, you, I thought that was an excellent article, but you know, you're also a published author. And the book is called Tanking to the Top, the Philadelphia 76ers and the Most Audacious Process in the History of Sports. Uh, it's available on Amazon and probably on a host of other places. So, own, I, I know this round is far from over, but you know, since you're a bit of an expert on the Sixers, let's assume for a moment the Nets continue to roll over the Bucks and the Sixers bounce back from that ugly performance against the Hawks in Game 1. To me, I, I've always feared that team more than the deer because you know I just feel that Philly is tougher, more versatile. Of course, you know, everything will hinge on Joel Embiid's health, but am I wrong? How would you analyze the Net Sixers Eastern Conference Eastern Conference final? Yeah, I mean the Embiid health thing is I know he looked good game one. The Embiid health thing would be the you know, if he's not if even he was fully healthy, I mean the way the Sixers they're um their path of success would be just, you know, either saying the Nets are going to have to play DeAndre Jordan, that's going to muck up their offense, right? And Or not, you know, Embiid's going to score 50 a game against Nick Claxton, right? And Blake Griffin, whoever, just because he's so much bigger. Um, I just, again, the, the math of the Nets is just so different. Their offense is so explosive. It's like you, you have to be able to score. That's the thing, right? You can play great offense. You can be great defense. You're not going to stop them. So at a certain point, you just have to be able to score. And I don't think the Sixers can score enough to keep up with the Nets. Um, it would be interesting. It would be interesting. You know, Simmons, I guess, is one of these guys who, if you're taking guys who are the prototypical people in the league who can maybe make KD work, I'd probably name three of them, Giannis, Simmons, and Kawhi, probably in reverse order there, right? Kawhi and Simmons and Giannis. So it'll be interesting to see Simmons and Tybalt's a great defender. But again, it, let's say a guy like Matisse Tybalt, who they would need to play because they'd want his defense. He is not, he is a negative on offense. And you, with a team like the Nets, you can't make that calculation, right? It just, they, they put so much pressure on you. Um, so I think uh, at this point, again, let, let's see, I guess we're, we're all running the Bucks off and, you know, maybe they win game three because they're home and just like that. It's a series. Um, I, I, I don't know what team in the East is going to make the Sixers even sweat. I'd be very surprised. But by the way, I'm wrong all the time. So that means they'll get. Well, I'm going to ask you to go a little even further because this is my last question. I know you got to run. Um, it, it, I know injuries alter can alter the landscape, but you know, given where we are right now, 
what's your prediction for the NBA Finals? Do you see the Nets? I guess you're seeing the Nets there. So who do you yeah. have them facing in the West? Um. So, but so we're we're recording this on Tuesday morning. I did not get to watch. I was late. I did not. I was driving home writing, so I did not get to watch Phoenix wipe the floor with Denver last night. Um. Yeah, the, uh, the the pick is obviously the Clippers. I'm very curious to see how the Clippers um, – well, the obvious pick, I should say, right? I'm very serious, uh, curious to see how the Clippers look here going forward against the Jazz. I mean, that's the series we don't want to see in terms of star power, right? Brooklyn versus Clippers and see well, what happens there. I think that's the network's dream, but – Yeah, and even just, you know, the idea of Paul George and we're thinking about defense, like matchups. Again, Kawhi and KD, that'd be a lot of fun, right? That would seem like sort of a battle for the belt there, right? Um, well, Utah's – you know Utah's, uh, I guess, their their structure versus the Nets' improvisation. Yeah, that's a good. I like that. That's interesting. I, this is what I'm saying. It's just you know, I don't know. I, I, at a certain point, like I just don't. I don't think you would like to keep up. I'm, I'm intrigued by Phoenix. I'm intrigued to see what goes on here because there's something clicking there. Something going on here. They they're they're well rounded, right? They're kind of the team. If you're looking through the team that has the, the horse on offense, they play really good defense. They have some wings. They have shooting. They have all that stuff. Um, I actually think might, you can maybe make an argument. Again, I have to watch a game last night, but I, I, you can make an argument that given the Clippers' weirdness, that maybe Phoenix is the best matchup in terms of it can make them work the most, right? If Booker can kind of go toe-to-toe on offense and Chris Paul does Chris Paul things and Mikael Bridges is a great wing defender and Aiden's look great and they have some other wings and Jay Crowder and campaigns other guys and they're well-coached, I'd be interested to see that. But at this point, I mean, I think also I saw the lines. Like the Nets are heavy favorites and they should be. Your own Weitzman of FoxSports.com. Can't thank you enough for giving me your time today to talk Nets basketball. Wish you continued success with your book and whatever you write in the future, I'll be reading. Thank you very much, Your own. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Your own Weitzman of FoxSports.com. Wow, what a spot. I mean, the guy is clued in, exceptional writer. You should check out his past work on other outlets like The Ringer and try to buy his book. So that will close the book on this episode of the City Game Podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did, definitely subscribe on whatever platform you're using. Odyssey, Apple, Stitcher, etc. Also, give me some feedback, huh? Hit me up on Twitter or in the Apple Podcast comment section. I'll be back sometime next week, depending on how this series goes. So until next time, I'm Steve Lichtenstein of WFN.com saying thank you for listening to the City Game Podcast. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ookla speed test intelligence data. Fixed median download speeds. US Q3 2023. Old man winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, old man winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. 
Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details.